Truth Espresso, episode 256. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hey there, friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick. And we have my sweet, beautiful wife and co-host here with me once again. And we are going to tackle one of the most difficult, one of the most challenging, one of the most controversial passages of Scripture. One of the most debated ones. And it's so debated, controversial, difficult, such that we're not going to be able to do it all in one episode. And what is that passage, you might ask? Well, it is the passage about the Nephilim and the sons of God and the daughters of men. So trying to figure out who all they are. So thank you for being willing to uh, step into this with me, sweetheart. Yes, thanks for having me join in on this. So are you pretty sure that Nephilim are not aliens from outer space? Maybe like 99.999999% sure. (laughs) (laughs) So that is some of the thoughts that I saw in reading about this, that some Christians think that they are aliens. I've seen a renewed interest in that. If you've paid attention to anything about all the recent ufo hearings in congress and stuff mm-hmm. then then i'd hear some christian podcasters i know matt walsh is among them matt walsh is a catholic podcaster on the daily wire but he's kind of quarreled with his fellow daily wire hosts over the topic of ufos because he seems to be open to ufos and aliens and the other ones criticize him for that so they have their battles but yeah he and some like other forms of christians will then start arguing that the nephilim in the bible are a reference to aliens from outer space but we're not actually going to take on that theory, maybe, <laughs> with our study of this passage. We're going to look at several common theories that have been proposed in history and have endured the test of time. And so I think it's fitting first to read the verses so we can start to ask questions about the verses. And so, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 say, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants, Nephilim, in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. 
And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this is the passage that has raised a lot of speculation, dispute. Many pages have been inked and spilled to talk about what these verses mean because they're simple to read, but yet they seem to raise a lot of questions in the 21st century mind. So just to kind of establish a timeline here, this is after Noah's flood. Uh, This is right before. This is kind of giving the setting for why God decided to flood the earth. So this is obviously showing that evil is happening. Humanity's multiplying. There's something involving marriage that seems to be described in a negative way. There's also the Nephilim or the giants in the earth in those days. And also mighty warriors or heroes Men of old, men of renown, so it seems to be like historically recognized figures or the people of legend somehow were living at this time. And then that's the backdrop for God saying, will not always strive with man. He was sorry that he made man. He's going to destroy man with the flood. But Noah was special. Noah was Zedek or righteous or just. And so God spares Noah and his family while he floods the rest of the earth and destroys everyone else. So this rather strange passage The purpose of it is to get us to realize that as the earth was being populated, there was also a lot of wickedness going on. So I think it's interesting that we have some pre-flood giants, and then later down the road, we have giants again. When Israel was a nation, the Canaanites and stuff, yeah, Mm -hmm. there are mentions of giants. And what's one example that you can think of that's (laughs) well-known? Goliath. <laughs> yeah, Goliath, six cubits in a span height, and also Goliath had some brothers who were possibly large themselves too, and the Anakim. So there were giants during the time of Israel too, after the flood, and that also raises questions as to how we are to understand the Nephilim. And what about this word Nephilim that we see in Genesis 6 and verse 4? Well, the only other time in the Bible that we see this term is in Numbers 13.33, because this is when the spies, the 12 spies went out. And you have the song that the ten were bad and two were good and stuff like that. The spies went out, and so Numbers 13.33 says, And there we saw the giants, Nephilim, the sons of Anak, or the Anakim, which come of the giants, Nephilim. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. (laughs) So they saw these really large people. As they reported back, they saw giant people. We were like grasshoppers to them. And so they were afraid to fight these people. It's like, Okay, how are we going to do this? I know what the plan is, but can we execute that plan? Look at these people. Or at least that's how they reported. So that's the other mention of Nephilim. 
So the question now is, what does the word Nephilim mean? Because even the meaning of the word can have multiple applications. Like there's a literal meaning of the word, but then, yeah, how you even understand that also leads to your interpretation of who these Nephilim were. So the word Nephilim, or Nafal, the singular form, it literally seems to mean fallen ones. But it's also, at least semantically, seems to mean giants in size. So they're like the fallen giants, I guess. I was reading one article, too, that was saying, like, it's kind of the fallen upon. So, like, there are large men that could fall upon their enemies. Like, Yeah, there's different ways to figure out what does the word fallen mean. Yeah. Are they, they fallen in battle? Because there's understanding of, like, okay, with the flood, you have kind of a fall all of man has god destroyed them that these were the great people who fell in the flood and as we'll see you do have a concept of fallen angels and so that's what leads people to come to an interpretation of the nephilim that have to do with fallen angels it means fallen it also can mean giants in size and numbers 1333 using the same word would seem to clarify that there is definitely a meaning that the nephilim were mighty towering people it wasn't their giants and accomplishments and intellect or something like that they were literally physically giant A lot of the debate for understanding and interpreting what the Nephilim are is to understand, or it depends on the interpretation of who the sons of God and the daughters of men are, because there may be a relationship between talking about how Genesis 6-2 talks about the sons of God and the daughters of men intermarrying, and then afterwards it mentions in verse 4 about they were Nephilim on the earth in those days. So who were the Nephilim? Well, it might help if we understand who are the sons of God. Now, one interpretation of the sons of God that we can rule out for certain, I don't know of anyone who would propose this unless it was someone who held a theology like Mormonism or something. We know that God himself does not marry. God doesn't have a wife. God didn't procreate. God doesn't have literal children. So the sons of God are not literal offspring of Yahweh God himself. No one is like a Christian theologian proposes that as an interpretation of the sons of God. So the sons of God has to be a label or a term for or a metaphor for someone that God created. So then the question is, to whom does it refer? God's created angels, God's created humans, a certain class of humans, a certain lineage of humans. It just reminded me of a verse that I get stuck in my head a lot. (laughs) That we shall be called the sons and daughters of God. (laughs) Oh, yes. Behold, what manner of love is this? Trying to remember. I'm confusing. In Hebrews, it mentions, like, now we are the sons of God or the children of God. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we shall be called the children of God. Yeah. Yeah. First John 3. That's right. Sorry. Not (laughs) Hebrews. Yeah. So we being Christians or recognizing our need for a savior, 
And when we enter into that relationship with God, that he calls us his sons and daughters too. So, you know, see, like when God calls someone a son, it's someone that's like special and dear to God. And in the notes, I didn't record the many verses from the New Testament that talks about like it's definitely a New Testament revelation, Christology, theology, soteriology (laughs) that makes liberal use of referring to Christians or followers of Jesus and so on as the sons of God that can be used to understand who the sons of God are in Genesis 6. Mostly I was trying to think of could the Hebrew of the Old Testament provide any kind of commentary before we get to the New Testament, but it's definitely significant because if it's the understanding of the line of Seth as those who are proposed to be the righteous people, then that would definitely carry on with the New Testament use of children of God, sons of God as believers. I guess I was just thinking like when God refers in the Old Testament or the New Testament when he refers to the sons of God that it's something like it's because he has this like care for them like mm-hmm. he has this love for them they're like a special group mm-hmm. of people it's not like he doesn't call everyone <laughs> yes the sons of God <laughs> and so it's kind of like okay there's a special group of people he's referring to as the son of God And we see a lot of times in the Old Testament that the phrase sons of God refers to angels. And like we know that angels were created to worship God, to like be his messengers. Yeah. They surround the throne and praise God day and night, basically. Yeah. So they have like this special place in God's heart. Like That does kind of take us to our first popular interpretation of who are the sons of God. And the first one and it is that the sons of God referenced in Genesis 6 here are fallen angels in some form. And when it comes to the fallen angel theory, which is a very popular theory that has a lot of attestation and, you know, is very old historically speaking. So when we look at this theory, even if people might have kind of an aversion to it, because it seems really strange, you know, we can't discount just how popular and just how much support there is for it. So if anyone's going to disagree with the fallen angel theory, it's not something that they disagree by easily dismissing it. So, if the sons of God were fallen angels, there can be basically two ways of looking at this. First, that there were angels who fell in this act that's described, or that they were already fallen, and then they committed the act. So, when did the angels commit the act, and when were they fallen? So, one way of looking at this is that angels in heaven... So after the fall in the Garden of Eden, angels in heaven, so after the fall, these were angels who at this time were in heaven. They looked at humans down from heaven and they lusted after the women there. So then they left heaven to pursue the relationship and intermarry with humans. Or they could have already been fallen angels, like the story of Lucifer, and he took a third of the angels with him, and they became demons and stuff. And then at some point, 
as already fallen angels on earth who observed the human population explode and then they were attracted to the women. They were probably tired of being limited in number. They wanted to expand and they also plotted to pollute the human race to prevent the Messiah from coming. So within this fallen angel theory are the two possibilities that the angels fell in the act of intermarrying with humans. Like, okay, you had angels who fell after the creation and before the fall of man and these particular angels were specially fallen that they fell later by committing this act or these were among the fallen angels who decided to commit a further act if what i'm describing seems strange to you as i've said this is possibly the most common understanding now maybe not today but as far as those who have theorized through history and as far as writings are concerned ancient writings this is likely the most common understanding of the most historical support So, as much as anyone may be averse to such an explanation, it is not one to dismiss lightly because of that. Our community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian producers who podcast on areas of expertise and passion. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded podcasters proclaiming the truth of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at christianpodcastcommunity.com. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts or one stop for the podcasts that are about to be your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.com You want to start with the first argument for the sons of God being angels? Because you, you mentioned that the Bible does talk about angels as the sons of God. So one of the passages that we can look at where it's talking about the sons of God referring to angels comes from Job chapter 1 verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And then again in Job 2 verse 1 it says, Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And then our last place that we'll reference this for now is Job 38, verse 7. It says, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Job 38, 7, is, it's talking about during the creation, God is mentioning when he laid the foundation of the earth, basically. And then at this time, when the morning stars, which also refers to angels, sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, like a Hebrew parallelism there. The morning stars sang, the sons of God shouted for joy. These are clearly references to angels at the time of creation. And so we have three verses from Job and the argument for the sons of God referring to angels is that in the Hebrew Old Testament, 
all references to that particular phrase, sons of God, which are these three verses from Job, all refer to angels. And so if that's the case, then why should we consider sons of God in Genesis here not to refer to angels? We wouldn't want to make it a hopox, a one-time occurrence, if we don't have any justification. That's one argument for the sons of God to refer to angels. Another argument, and it's a pretty strong argument when you look at how verses in the New Testament seem to be support for this idea. So, secondly, Jude is thought to have quoted from the book of Enoch, an apocryphal book, the book of Enoch, when the epistle of Jude says in verses 14 through 15, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. You know, notice how many times Jude uses the word ungodly there. And if we look at the book of Enoch, the book of Enoch, chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, And behold, he cometh with ten thousands of his holy ones, or his saints, to execute judgment upon all, and to destroy all the ungodly, and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken. Spoken against him. So it seems like Jude is clearly quoting from the book of Enoch because it's almost an exact quote there. And of course, if he was quoting from the book of Enoch, the book of Enoch, chapter 7, narrates basically the account of Genesis 6 as angels. It mentions angels, it mentions names of angels. And it says that the angels, basically, they conspired a plot to come down to a mountain and then to intermarry with humans and produce children for themselves. And so, if Jude is quoting from the book of Enoch, which it very much seems like, I mean, it's uncanny, the parallel there with the quote, then it would seem to make Jude, verse 6, in agreement with the book of Enoch. And if Jude knew what the book of Enoch says, then why would Jude not? agree with the book of Enoch's interpretation of Genesis chapter 6. This seems to be pretty solid proof, but you can raise the question that the book of Enoch itself is written afterwards, after the book of Jude, and so the book of Enoch could be writing what Jude quoted and putting it into its story. So perhaps Jude was not quoting for the book of Enoch, but the book of Enoch is backporting a quote from Jude to say, hey, Joe's quoting from this. <laughs> That's a possibility some scholars, have, as I've read, have suggested that there's no real proof that the book of Enoch, as we have the manuscripts today, was something that Jude would have read and would have quoted. 
quoted. So that's an argument against this. But taking for granted that the argument presented that Jude was quoting from the book of Enoch, that would be pretty solid evidence that, hey, if he's making a strong direct quote from the book of Enoch, the apocryphal book of Enoch, then why, then, if he's read from and quoted from it, not also believe that with the book of Enoch in the fallen angel theory of the sons of God. It seems kind of interesting. So when Lucifer fell, it was because he wanted to, I mean, basically his pride, he wanted to be like God. And then, I mean, to me, it makes sense that the angels would be like, oh, we want to be great and powerful too. What if we (laughs) can procreate because angels can't procreate like that would make them powerful so it just seems like that would make sense that that would be something that would tempt them if they were fallen because they were trying to be like god or more powerful yeah and it could be something with angels where fallen angels where they think well how do we beat God? Well, we beat him by numbers. We beat him by creating our own army and legacy and stuff like that. And, you know, if God doesn't make them male and female like he made man and the animals and stuff, well, we'll figure out a way to reproduce and create something <laughs> for children. Sorry, I was kind of off subject. <laughs> I just like oh. think through the stuff when we're reading these different yeah. passages. So our third argument for um, the sons of God referring to angels is a parallel passage of Jude and Second Peter, where they compare and contrast sending angels with Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter mentions that the flood after the angels happened like in this account here. So Jude and Second Peter seem to have a lot of similarities there, and since they have a lot of similarities, they both kind of mention in succession. Peter, in his parallel account to Jude, mentions the flood, kind of tying the flood with the angels that sinned, as both of them tie the angels that sinned, kind of comparing and contrasting them with the evil and the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. So that kind of could make a point here. So Jude 1 verse 6 says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, and going after strange flesh, and are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. If you have this fallen angel theory, then you can even look at verse 7 where it mentions the people of Sodom and Gomorrah going after strange flesh to mean something similar to, okay, they're trying to intermarry with something that's not quite like them. The same way the angels wanted to intermarry with something that wasn't like them. And so you can see this parallel. So uh, in Jude verse 6, it can be talking about angels wanting to intermarry with humans. That was their plot. If that's what the sons of God were and the daughters of men being humans. And so verse 6 has angels wanting to intermarry with humans. And then in verse 7, 
if you were to look at what this is referring to in Genesis chapter 19, you have the two men who stayed with Law and then the men of Sodom and Gomorrah surround the house and they want to have relations with these two men who were angels. So Jude verse 6, angels want to intermarry with humans. Verse 7, have humans wanting to intermarry with angels. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think it's a, it's a pretty interesting observation there for this point, and that Jude could be making a point here with both of those. Yeah, so then we have the parallel passages in Second Peter 2, 4, where it says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and deliver them into chains of darkness, to be reserved unto judgment... And spared not the world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. Peter, in his parallel account to Jude there, he mentions the angels that sinned like Jude did. And he also mentions the Sodom and Gomorrah that Jew did, but sandwiched in between those, he mentions sparing not the old world and the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So could Peter, in verse 5 there about the flood, be tying that with verse 4 about the angels that sinned? Like, is he talking about the same event? Kind of elaborating on that. The angels that sinned had something to do with the flood of Noah upon the world of the ungodly before then comparing, kind of making, okay, here's the next example, Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, as we look at this theory, we can figure out, piece together what we're talking about here. So, the angels in Genesis 6 are the sons of God, and they, according to Jude, kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation when they intermarried with the daughters of men in Genesis 6 and produced the legendary demigod Nephilim. So God soon afterwards judged these super evil angels by casting them into Tartarus, which is Second Peter 2.4. Now, you might say, wait, what are you talking about Tartarus? Well, the word for hell there in Second Peter 2.4 says, but cast them down to hell. That's actually one word, and it's Tartaruo. It's a verb form of the word Tartarus. The term in Greek mythology for the lowest region of the underworld underneath Hades, you have Tartarus. And so Peter's actually using that. He Tartarus, he cast them into Tartarus, these angels that sin, and put them in chains of darkness. And so it's like, you almost have to think that Peter's making a point that these angels that sinned might not be exactly the same angels that maybe fell with Lucifer, but this was a secondary group of angels that sinned, and what they did was just so heinous that instead of being on the earth as demons walking around and trying to deceive people and possess people this was like okay you guys get a special judgment right now you guys i'm gonna cast you down to tartarus and you will be in chains awaiting judgment you don't get to wander around the earth and possess people and so that's different from 
everyone else who's unsaved, such as the wicked humans who fell in the flood and the Nephilim, when they died, they're in Hades while they await the final judgment. So simple, huh? (laughs) I hope all this makes sense, but there's a special judgment, it seems, for these angels that sinned. And so why would there be, you know, unless this act of of angels intermarrying with humans is uniquely evil in the grand scheme of things. And so it warrants a very special judgment right now by God as they await the day of judgment. So (laughs) if they were judged and thrown into Tartarus right then, how do we have the Nephilim in Numbers 13? That the Israelites saw in Canaan. Because they would have been destroyed in the flood. Yeah, Genesis 6 mentions in those days there were giants or the Nephilim. But wait, God said, I will not always strive with man. I'm going to destroy all of mankind with the flood. And it mentions, you know, in the flood that every high hill was covered. And so wouldn't they have all been destroyed in the flood, as you ask, sweetheart? So why is it that in Numbers, the Israelite spies saw Nephilim? Where did these Nephilim come from? So we have to look at Genesis 6-4 again. That could give a clue that it says there were giants or Nephilim in the earth in those days and also after that. So this verse could be saying there were Nephilim in these days, but there are also Nephilim after these days, like after the flood. If that's what Genesis 6, 4 is talking about, that can explain why we see people called Nephilim that the spies saw in Canaan after the flood. But then how does that work? Because weren't these Nephilim, according to the fallen angel theory, the offspring of fallen angels and humans? What gives here? (laughs) There are different explanations, and it depends on how one explanation, which I think I was trying to look at what Hugh Ross says, and Hugh Ross is an old earth creationist. He also believes that the flood of Noah was a local flood. And so, hey, if you believe that, then there's really no problem because it's possible that not all humans were killed by the flood. So for those who believe that the flood was local and not global, some of the Nephilim could have moved out of Noah's area where the flood was, and then they settled in Canaan. So you had a small group of Nephilim who eventually reproduced and kind of reigned over some areas in Canaan. So if anyone is in doubt that the flood was not global, (laughs) then you're welcome to come visit Colorado because we have lots of evidence about Uh, the flood being global. Yes. (laughs) All kinds of strata and fossils and stuff like that. So if we were going to take the fallen angel theory, we as young earth creationists who believe in a global flood wouldn't accept this explanation. So if that's the case, then are there other possible explanations for why there were Nephilim in Numbers 13? Well, another explanation is, well, you have angels who fell the time of Lucifer, then if you had angels who fell later by committing this act and creating Nephilim, 
why not? Like the nothing would preclude that after the flood, you can have yet more angels who fell, committed the same sin, tried to do the same plot, intermarried with humans after the flood in the land of Canaan and produced more Nephilim. Why not? That seems to be a perfectly rational explanation. If you don't wonder, like, wouldn't they have learned their lesson? You know, like, especially if these angels were aware that God cast the ones who sinned into Tartarus and chains of darkness awaiting judgment. Why would they even think of doing this? But hey, it could happen. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. That reminds me of our kids. (laughs) Like, sometimes we're like, why do you do the same thing that we just told you (laughs) earlier and you had? a privilege taken away from and yet you want to do it again (laughs) it's like sometimes people just let that desire or that pride i guess just get the best of them and they don't think about oh maybe we shouldn't do this we saw what happened to the other angels that tried this but yeah i was actually just like without looking at your notes right there i was thinking like okay it seems like more angels could just want the same thing and fall so (laughs) i'm glad you had that one in there because i was thinking the same thing (laughs) yeah now some question that could arise from that is like okay so we have basically three times where angels fell you know at the beginning of creation before the fall of man then before the flood and then after the flood are those the only three times? Like, is it kind of a progressive instance where, who knows, maybe angels could be falling right now as we speak. We just don't know. Or are these the only three times and why? That was raised that question to wonder, like, okay, how often do angels fall, if at all, since these three possible recorded instances? could be that the Israelite spies could have called these giants Nephilim because these giants could have reminded them of the stories of the Nephilim before the flood. So they saw these giants and it's like, whoa, these are the Nephilim. These are like the Nephilim that we heard about from our forefathers through the record of creation. Like, where do these people come from? They're Nephilim. They're describing these giants as Nephilim. Or even still, another possible explanation is to question the character of the spies. Like, if these spies that gave a bad report, maybe they weren't quite honest. I've actually read that that's a possibility. The spies could have either exaggerated the size of these Canaanites, or they could have lied about what they saw. Maybe they weren't actually giants there, but they reported it as such because they were too afraid to fight the Canaanite warriors. So they exaggerated like, these guys were huge. They were Nephilim, you know. <laughs> That's possible, but although you still have Goliath and his brothers yes. down the road from this. There were actual so, giants in Canaan, so yeah. it's not out of the realm of possibility that they did see giants indeed, and I think that it's likely that they did see giant people there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that's they were afraid. 
Hey there, friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. This is Daniel Minnick, the host of the Truth Espresso podcast on the Christian podcast community. And I want you to check out Voice of Reason Radio with Chris Honholtz and Richard Story. Chris and Rich are two guys with big hearts who will bring you a show every week that is sure to be challenging, encouraging, and biblical. Voice of Reason Radio with Chris Honholtz and Richard Story is part of the Christian podcast community. Check them out at slavetothekeng.com. That's slavetothekeng.com. And tell them Truthspresso sent you. So those are arguments for the fallen angel theory of the sons of God. Now, let's see, what are some arguments against this theory? Because, yeah, it is a pretty solid theory with a lot of attestation and seemingly a lot of scriptural support and a lot of extant apocryphal and written support. But what are some arguments against this? So one of the first arguments that we could propose that would be against this is that angels are spirit beings who were not created or designed for procreation with physical beings. Like you said, there isn't male or female among angels. And if they're spirit beings, then how is it possible for them to be able to procreate? And then in Hebrews 1.5, it says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So that verse kind of shows like, hey, you don't necessarily have to refer to the angels as sons of God in the ultimate sense. Like, because here's an argument to which of the angels did he say you are my son when talking about Jesus, who is the son of God. Yeah, so so we are. How are the angels described in scripture, especially Hebrews chapter one there? Yeah, Hebrews chapter one, verse seven, it says, and of the angels, he saith. Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? And also a similar passage in Psalms 104 verse 4 says, Who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire? So the writer of the Hebrews is quoting that psalm passage there. And then it also ends Hebrews chapter 1 with verse 14 reiterating. It says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So then the question is, well, if angels are described as spirits and they're a flame of fire, now maybe not literal fire, but that's just how they can be perceived to be or manifest sometimes. There are accounts in the Old Testament of powerful angels who appear. They look like fire or parts of them look like fire or they have a sword of fire and stuff like that. So if they're spirits and they have this aura of being a flame of fire, how does that intermarry with humans? (laughs) It would seem kind of um, chemically different in a way. Like, I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting in that verse in Hebrews where it says, are they not all ministering spirits? So these spirits can minister to people 
if they were fallen angels, couldn't they minister to humans to kind of convince humans (laughs) to be like, hey, go and procreate with these women. And like, even though this is against what God says, like you can do it and kind of minister them or lead them down the wrong path. And Hmm. I don't know, I just think that is kind of a key that they can minister to humans. So it's not like they don't interact with humans, but it could just be a different type of interaction because Hmm. they are spirit. I know there are, which I didn't put in the notes, but I should have. People can argue, well, you have a passage where an angel appeared and talked to people and they also ate. So if angels can eat, why can't they procreate? But I think, okay, eating and procreating are very different things. You know, like an angel can materialize in some kind of bodily form and possibly use their supernatural power to digest the atoms of food. But to have something where they can create children from humans and there's like they have some form of DNA. And to me, that raises a whole host of questions that just being able to disintegrate food molecules, I think that's a different thing. Okay, Mary conceived from the Holy Spirit. Yeah. The Son of God. Yeah. (laughs) Mormons will bring that up to make that the Holy Spirit, as a spirit creature from God, actually had relations with Mary. But when we read in the New Testament that she conceived via the Holy Spirit, it's not that the Holy Spirit had any kind of conventional relation with Mary to impregnate her. It was a miraculous act by which the Holy Spirit created a conceptus inside her, but it wasn't an act of intercourse. (laughs) But could fallen angels then somehow do a miraculous conception Mm. with humans? That is a good question, I would think. But if the Holy Spirit, being God, can do that, that doesn't necessarily imply that angels have the power to do that. So, you know, maybe they can, maybe they can't. You know, that's a question left for the reader. (laughs) So the first argument against was that angels are spirit beings and they're flame of fire. Their God didn't design them to procreate. And a second argument is that if it was God's intent and design that angels never marry and produce offspring, why would he equip them with the capacity to procreate seemingly only unlawfully with humans and not with other angels? So, Yeah, in fact, not long before this in the creation account, not long before Genesis 6, you have Genesis 1, Genesis 2, where it mentions that God created everything to reproduce after its kind. Some people believe that the Bible teaches that angels are genderless. Maybe, maybe not. Whatever the case, they're angels, how they're manifest as humans see them, they seem to carry an aura of a male gender. Whether or not they're genderless, they're manifested as males that we can see. There don't appear to be any female angels in the Bible, unless one takes the vision of the two winged women in Zechariah chapter 5 verses 9 through 11 as angels. But it's a vision, and it mentions that these women have wings like a stork, and it never says that they're angels. This vision that Zechariah has 
there he's talking with an angel and he sees two women with wings like a stork but maybe they're angels maybe they're not but it's it's still a vision so there's no certainty there other than that all specific mentions of angels have male names they appear to be like men like male men so we seem to have the design of God for angels that they don't procreate. And God, in his creation, created everything to reproduce after its kind. So why did God create angels specifically not to reproduce with each other? And either they're genderless or they're all male or something like that. But they're somehow equipped with the ability to reproduce you know, but they're not allowed to. I know that that's not an absolutely foolproof argument, but it seems strange to me that God would create angels with the ability to do something inherently in his perfect design at the beginning of creation. Behold, it was very good, but he designed them with something that can only be used in a sinful way. If you think about it too, like the purpose of the angels is to worship God or to minister to man, if the angels are concerned with finding a mate and reproducing and raising their children, like just how we are, when we have that responsibility, then we don't have as much time to minister as like the angels all their focus is on God and worshiping mm. Him. Yeah. Their focus doesn't have to be on all these other things. So mm. I think in some ways, like that makes sense because that was <laughs> how God made them. Yeah, because you have Paul talking about. I think is it First Corinthians chapter seven where he talks about how married people should conduct themselves, but then also those who are single have the time and the ability to serve God, and mm-hmm. you know maybe that's reflected in how God created the angels. They're intended to worship and serve God day and night. But the question about, like, why are they equipped in their created design for something that's never to happen and never after their own kind? (laughs) (laughs) And we see the problem that you might be thinking, you know, if you've heard this theory before and if you object to the theory of the fallen angels as the sons of God, you would probably want to bring up as an objection Matthew 2230 or its parallels mark 1225 luke 20 verses 34 through 36 so matthew 2230 says where jesus is answering a challenge he says for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are as the angels of god in heaven So Jesus is saying that when the saints are resurrected for the eternal state, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. They don't produce offspring. They are like the angels of God in heaven who don't produce offspring. So if the angels can't reproduce and as resurrected in the eternal state, the saints are like the angels in that respect, well then doesn't that prove that angels can't reproduce if the resurrected saints can't reproduce, and that's an argument that Jesus gives. They don't have children. They don't marry. They are like the angels in heaven that way. But a counter-argument could be, <laughs> I mean, Jesus said that the angels in heaven don't marry, but what about the angels that leave heaven or fall from heaven? 
What if they could? So that is a counter argument. If you bring up that verse, be prepared for that. Jesus said they're like the angels in heaven. Well, if the angels are not in heaven, then maybe they could marry or have children and produce offspring like the Nephilim. And that's wrong for them to do. They get judged for that, but they're technically capable of doing that. And only the angels in heaven who stay praising God, they can't do that. Ever wish you could get together with a friend over coffee each week and talk about God's Word? Me too. Hi, I'm Anthony Russo. I'm the host of Grace and Peace Radio. Grace and Peace Radio is a Christian living blog and podcast dedicated to engaging conversations about applying God's Word to everyday life. I hope you'll join me, Anthony Russo, on Grace and Peace Radio each week at graceandpeaceradio.com or right here on the christianpodcastcommunity.org. Another counter-argument going off the way the text is worded, Jesus said that the resurrected saints neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like the angels in heaven. He's not necessarily saying the angels can't. He's just saying that they don't. Mm-hmm. It still, to me, begs the question of, reproducing after one's kind and the gender evidence of angels that they don't see female angels and why is it that everything that god created reproduces after its own kind somehow except the angels they can reproduce but always only not after their own kind That's a sticking point for me, even though I offer these counter-arguments against the challenge of the angels in heaven neither marrying nor given in marriage. You know, it's, it's just something to think about. So what is the third and final argument against the fallen angels theory? Looking at Genesis 6-4, the text isn't exactly clear that the Nephilim mentioned as existing in those days are, in fact, the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. The verse could be saying that in those days they were giants or Nephilim. Also in the same days of these giants, the sons of God and the daughters of men produced mighty men, or the term gibberim, of renown. This was a time of the giants and the mighty heroes of legend. Some of the stories that you hear and kind of pass down through the generations are of these massive giants, these huge warriors, the demigods, and things like that with Greek mythology. And so that's where some of this could come from. The narration there is not necessarily saying that the Nephilim are the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. It's just saying there were giants in the earth in those days, and the sons of God and daughters of men produced mighty warriors, the Gibberim, men of old men of renown, but that these mighty warriors are different from the Nephilim. It's just saying hey, this was an age of a lot of powerful people. You had the giants, the Nephilim. You also had the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, producing the mighty warriors, the epic heroes and stuff from which, you know, when you read mythology and legend and they have all these accounts of heroes doing amazing things, well, the reason you have all these legends and stuff is that it comes from people who lived during this time. 
And so, like, that's another argument against the angels as sons of God intermarrying and producing these giants, Nephilim, is that just, hey, it's not entirely clear in this verse that the Nephilim are, in fact, the offspring. They could just be others that were there, and that the Nephilim are not the same as the mighty men. It seems like there's good evidence that you could say that they are, but it's still not clear in the grammar of the verse that the Nephilim are in fact the offspring. It's just listing several things that were around at this time. It was certainly a strange, weird, great time to live. (laughs) The giants and the mighty warriors and the epic heroes and all that stuff from which legends and myths were born. I loved how you paired strange, weird, and great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I meant great, not necessarily as virtuous and good, but great as in wow. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't it remind you of like reading a C.S. Lewis book or something? (laughs) Yeah. J.R. Tolkien's like, oh, you can just see like how the scripture, I love that when you read God's word, like it comes to life so much and there's nothing left out as far as it's just not telling you, oh, this is the good stuff here. It tells you the good, the bad, the (laughs) falling, the getting up and you see the whole picture there with God and how he keeps working with men. He keeps working with these fallen angels and I just love that we could see how God just cares so much for his creation and he cares for mankind and he wants to keep reaching them no matter how much we fall or how much we fail and go down the wrong path. He's like, nope, I'm going to keep showing my love for you. So I think it's a beautiful thing. (laughs) And it's also interesting how these few verses seem to be kind of telling the reader, like, this is what really happened. You might have heard all these stories, these myths and legends, but this is what really happened. And they got it from this truth. You know, you have the Epic of Gilgamesh that's kind of a parallel account of the Flood and how a kind of a Canaanite-type society might have remembered the Flood as a kind of a legend with the Gilgamesh there. And it, it shows that the Flood happened, but they didn't recall it correctly. And then you have Greek mythology about the Titans who were of old. They were giants and they got destroyed. And then you had the other gods and created other humans and how the titans were actually confined to tartarus you know so you do have stories from mythology that have parallels that could come from the bible but we know that they developed their stories from the truth of the bible eventually and that things got twisted as they were passed down over the years into mythology but it just shows like the bible is saying hey all of that stuff, this is where the men of renown, this were the were the giants, this is where you get all that stuff from that you read about later. <laughs> it came from this truth, and there was this evil, and God destroyed it in a flood. <laughs> and so, yeah, like how the Bible is true, regardless of your theory about the sons of God, and were they fallen angels? 
We'll let you be the judge, but stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso and the next one as we look at another theory and analyze that and see arguments for or against another theory about who were the sons of God and consequently who were the Nephilim. So stay tuned for that and God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 